You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. Can you believe it? This is week four already on autonomy. Week four. We're looking at this series in the book of Judges. We've called it Autonomy. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And uh, what I've pointed out is that there should be... We'll just skip. You got those? Forget it. We'll skip the first time. I'm just going to read a passage. So you've got Gideon is in chapter 6, 7, and 8. I'm not going to read all three chapters of the book of Judges. So if you've got it, if you want to open it up and you just want to follow, the word should come up here. I'm skipping through. I'm going to start at the beginning of chapter 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Verse 5. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian was so impoverished the Israelites they cried at the Midian so impoverished the Israelites they cried out to the Lord for help. Skip down verse 8. He sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Then in the story, Gideon sets an offering before God. It is accepted by fire. Jump down to verse 24. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven-year-old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. The rest of the story is that Gideon does this at night. He's got ten servants that help him. The next day, he's discovered. They work out it was Gideon and these guys, and they all want to beat him up. And the father says, look, if Baal is really God, let him fight his own battles. Don't get involved. Verse 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place this wool fleece on the threshing floor. And some of you will know this, that he does it a couple of times. He says, I want the wool to be wet and the ground to be dry. God does it. He says, oh, God, I'm still a bit doubtful. I'd like the ground to, I'd like it swapped around the other way. And God does it. I'm now on to chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, they'd renamed him because he had opposed Baal. And all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. So Gideon, verse 8, sent the rest of the Israelites to their tent. 
basically those that were afraid, he said, you can go. So he, he sent away 22,000 of them. He then gets them to dip down and, and to see how they drink, and he ends up keeping 300. That's all he has. You see, what God says is, look, there's no way you can do it with a big army. He had 32,000. Let's just put this in context. That wasn't a big army. We think the people that he were against was 135,000. He's still really nervous. God says to him, look, I've got a plan. Creep down into the enemy's camp. When you get there, you'll hear that one of them's got a dream. He has this dream. It's of this bread roll, a barley roll that rolls down and flattens them. And in case you don't even know what the dream means, the guy says, I know what that means. It means Gideon's going to kill us. He is going to win. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, it's verse 15, he bowed down and worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands, dividing the 300 men that he's now got left into three companies. That's 100, 100, 100. He placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of them all with torches inside. And so they've got this strategy. They're not actually going to fight them. They're going to surround them. They're going to light the torch, they're going to smash the jar, the torches will be lit, and they're going to blow the trumpets. Some would say that actually it was about 10 o'clock at night and they were swapping over, and the Midianites just ended up killing one another. Gideon's therefore won. However, he's challenged by some of the tribes. He acts wisely for some and harshly with others. Down to verse 22, the Israelites say to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They all answered, we're glad to give it to you. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring in from the plunder. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to Baals. I know that's quite a big story. It is the largest amount of verses given to one judge in the book. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to get to work. Father, we thank you. You've spoken so clearly to us as we've come to worship you. And now as we're looking at this life of Gideon, I pray that you'd speak again. Lord, some of us would have heard this story so many times. Some of it feels completely new. But God, we do believe that you speak. God, we almost want to just lean forward right now and say, God, speak to us. Let us go from this place having heard from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what about the people? What was going on here? Well, last week, Deborah, you could say, challenged the people about disunity. This week, the battle is with stupidity. You see, the reality is that these people were in sin. Joshua who led the people into the promised land, said this, 
you will have victory and conquest. He prophesied, look, this land is given by God to you. But in their stupidity, they had forgotten God's word. They'd forgotten that God had said, look, you're going to conquer this, that you're going to own this, that you're going to have this, that this is a blessing to you. They had forgotten it. I think the challenge is that when we forget the word of God, we live in stupidity as well. I know that can seem a real harsh one, but I think that's the lesson that comes from here straight away. If you've been to this church for the last couple of weeks, you'd have known me bang the drum for the CBR journal. It's something they were doing because what it says is, read the word every day. Not only read it, read it in community. Share it with somebody else. If we forget the word of God, we do stupid things. You see, the word of God promised them conquest and victory, but because they'd forgotten the word of God, where were they? They were in caves hiding from camels. In those days, camels you know, were considered the, the, the lightning strikes. They were the ones that were going fast. But they were suddenly in a small place fearing an enemy when God had said, you are to be victorious. And sometimes our problem is that we try and hide away and we think, if I could just keep this little place going, whereas actually God says, no, I want you to take ground. I want you to press on and to go forward. These people, they've sinned. And we've been talking about this, how it just repeats in the book of Judges. It goes round again and again and again. But before God saves them, it's the only time it happens in the book, before he saves them, he sends them a sermon. There's a prophet that turns up. God sends this prophet. And basically, the sermon is very simple. God reminds them what he's done for them. He basically says, look, I took you across the Red Sea. You know, when you'd been slaves for 400 years, I broke you out. Although Pharaoh came with his army, I got you across the Red Sea. I've taken you through the wilderness. I've fed you for 40 years. I've clothed you. God says, that's what I've done. And the sermon ends, but you have not done what I asked. You see, I believe that God was challenging them because they were living in regret. They did not like the consequences of their own actions. They didn't like the fact that the Midianites turned up. They didn't like the fact that they were losing their cattle, their grapes, their olives, their wheat, their barley. But they were not repentant. And I think there's a difference. Regret means we don't like the consequences of our own sin. What do I mean by this? You started smoking at a young age because actually you wanted to look cool at school. And now 10 years later, you think, oh, God, my teeth are going yellow. My fingers and my pockets feel like they've got holds on. I regret the actions of what I do. I regret the consequences. Maybe you started looking at pornography and it felt like titillating and exciting. And now you regret it because actually you think, golly, I just don't love my wife in the way that I should. You regret the consequences of your action. Maybe you, you, you fly off in anger and you start shouting at people and you get all cross and then you realize you just don't have friends. You regret the consequences of your actions. Even the gift day, and you'd love to give some money, but you've got nothing to give because at the end of the day, as soon as you've had it, you've spent it. And you think, I hate being broke. You regret the consequences of your actions. There's a difference, I believe, between regret and repentance. 
Because regret is, I don't like how this is affecting me. Repentance means I turn towards God. You see, regret is, it's, it's, the focus is upon me. Oh God, I, I feel lousy. Oh God, make me feel better. Repentance is, I recognize how this is blocking my relationship with God. And actually, what you do is you then turn and you say, God, I want to focus upon you. I want to fix my eyes upon you. That's what repentance means. Repentance is saying, how do I engage in you? How do I have relationship with you? And what I do is I suddenly realize that this is screwing me over. Let's be honest. If you are facing the same issue again and again and again, have you got caught in regret rather than repentance? Now, the hope, because you can think, oh, golly, Pete, this doesn't give me any hope at all. The hope that I find from the life of Gideon is this. We don't know that they changed. (laughs) The prophet comes and basically says, you're just caught up in this. We do not know that Israel repented, but what we do know is that God still sends them a saviour. But that is the gospel, isn't it? You see, it says in Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes we think, I turned towards God. I started doing enough good things that he accepted me. But actually, what this tells us is, there was nothing that they did to turn towards God. But in grace, God said, I'm still going to send a saviour. And that is true for us today. You don't have to think, have I been good enough? I was beginning to get better, and now he's made me even better. No, in grace, God has come. I love the picture of grace in this. So then we're going to look at this character, Gideon. I hopefully got three points, but I think I'm only getting to two this morning. The first thing is this, and Gideon is weak. Gideon looks at his circumstances and feels as though God has left them. How can all these bad things happen if you're God? And maybe if you're brutally honest, you're sat here this morning feeling the same. God, if if you're really in my life, why is this ill health plaguing me? If you're really there, why can't I shave? You're doing well on the head, even if not the chin, to be totally honest for I. There's a huge challenge, isn't there? The solution is the weakest, poorest humblest member of the community. Think about this. If you're looking for a savior, you wouldn't choose Gideon. Gideon is afraid of the Midianites. We want people that are bold. Gideon comes from the weakest clan. If you read about when Moses is going to take them into the promised land, what you discover is is two of the tribes didn't even cross the Jordan. They decided to settle for this. We think this is, we think we know better than God. We're going to settle here, God. Okay, you want to give us the promised land? They go, Gideon was from one of the tribes that never even got into the promised land. He was that much of an outsider. His father is an idolater. We know that his father's built this idol. His father's worshipping the idol. He's brought up in an idolatrous family. Why on earth would you take Gideon? He struggles to believe. God says something, and he says, oh, go on, sort this fleece out. God says something, oh, sort the fleece out again. If you had to name Gideon, you would name him Gideon the faint heart, not Gideon the brave heart. That would be true, wouldn't it? 
But what I take from this story is God is not looking for the SAS kind of material. Gideon's greatest qualification is that he has no qualification. And so I want to say to you, don't discount yourself. Gideon's greatest qualification is I've got nothing to offer. You might be sitting here this morning and think, do you know, I, don't, I just don't know if I've got anything to offer God. God does not work in spite of our weaknesses, but because of them. You might say, oh, Pete, you know, my English is not great. God wants to use you. You might say, oh, God, I'm, I'm just struggling. Man. God wants to take over you. You might think, oh, actually, I'm, I'm the fifth out of five in our family, and God wants to take a hold of you. That's, that's what we get from the life of Gideon. Paul writes to the church, doesn't he? He said, my grace is sufficient for you in 2 Corinthians 12. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm even going to suggest the fleece test was not a decision test which is how often we refer to it now, I'm putting out a fleece before God. He knew what God wanted. He wasn't asking God what he wanted. He wanted to discover more of God. You see, in his weakness, he thought, I need to know you better. We know that we're not supposed to test God. If you read in the New Testament, you know that that's the thing. What I love is this. God was so eager to save his people, he put up with some guy doing a silly fleece test. It's almost like, I'm so eager to reach out. I'm so eager to touch them, to save them, to bring them out of this oppression. Oh, go on then. You want it wet and dry? Fine, I'll do it wet and dry. Oh, you want it dry and wet? Fine, I'll do it dry and wet. I just want you to save my people. See, God was so eager to reach out. God is so eager today to make a difference to the life of the people in Ealing. He says, go on, I'll take you. He says, I just don't know if I could make a difference. I don't know if I could get anyone on Alpha. God says, I want to take a hold of you. I want to use you. He says, oh, God, I'm busy and I'm overwhelmed and my kids, my work and the house. God says, hey, I want to take a hold of you because actually I'm really eager to save people. Don't disqualify yourself. So that was Gideon the weak man. Now we see Gideon the man at war. Gideon, the name actually means to hack down. That's what he was named after, to hack down. What was the first thing that he had to do when God spoke to him? He had to go home and hack down the idol that was their families. They compromised. They were worshipping an idol. And God says the first thing you've got to do is sort it out. I believe that's a principle for us. The first thing we've got to do is sort out our own heart and our own home. When God wants us to go to battle for him, we start at home. That's why I always say, are you personally reading the Bible? Are you sharing in community? Because what you're really trying to say is, I'm making the fight at home. Before I can make a big difference, I've got to be one that takes a battle here. 
I've really enjoyed Tim Keller's book on this. I will quote him every week. I don't think there's a slide up, but I feel I have to, otherwise I'm not being fair. He says this, before they can throw off the enemy around them, they have to throw off the enemy within them. And that's so true in Gideon, isn't it? It's almost like he wants to get rid of the Midianites, but God says before you can deal with the Midianites, you deal with the enemy at home. And so often we can think, oh, we want to sort out all of this. And God says, actually, I want to sort out the idol in your own heart. And we know for some of us giving, we're having to die to that own idol with our own heart. Now, he doesn't do this all in his own strength. There is so much in this. We should have done a whole series just on the life of Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He could not do it in his own strength. You don't have to do it in your own strength either. You can be sitting here and thinking, oh, golly, Pete, I've got assignments. Oh, it's the end of the academic year. I can't do it. God wants to give you strength. And then we get this whole thing of the army, which I love. Gideon has this army of 32,000. The place Harod means trembling. Yeah. So in the story, he turns up with 32,000 people at this place of trembling. Oh, no. I mean, it says, look at them. Look how many people are. Look how vast they are. <laughs> They've got camels. I mean, they were literally turning up and shaking. But God comes in and says, you've got too many. God says, if anyone's afraid, tell them to go home. Can you imagine that? I mean, there's this big army. Everyone's, you know, strutting around with their stuff. You'd imagine, oh, you're afraid? Yeah, go home. And suddenly 22,000 go back to their tents. (laughs) And then we get this whole thing of, no, no, that's still, you've still got too many people. 10,000, that's far too many people. And so there's then this thing about the way they drink. And some people try and work out, is it those that were really on guard? No, no, it was a God thing. God was just trying to get rid of as many people as possible. They're down to 300. And as I say, they think the army was at least 135,000. I mean, Gideon has got 1% of what he started with. Why is that? Because God says this in Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. God gets all the glory. It is all about him. It's not meant to be about them. They had this great strategy. They had this great idea. They get the 300. They divide them by three. They've got these groups of hundreds. And then what does Gideon do? He makes sure that when the enemy turns on itself, when they literally start, I mean, they're literally killing one another. Then Gideon decides, we've got to keep going. We've got to press on. We've got to try and and, and take this. And he chases them for miles. He wants to make sure that the job is succeeded, that it's done, and they don't stop halfway through. And I'm sure there's, there's many things that we can pull out of there. I'm quickly, I am quickly going to do point three. I'll do it in two minutes, and then we will land. Gideon then has success. Gideon has success. And this is where things go wrong. Things go wrong when he succeeds. This is the first time that we've heard about it in the life of a judge. I told you that they do this circle, but actually a spiral because it gets worse and worse. This is the first time during the life of the judge where things get worse whilst he's alive and not waiting until he's dead. 
It's tragic, isn't it? Gideon the hero, Gideon the mighty warrior, Gideon who was a nobody but actually slayed these people. Although he says, I'm not your king, he behaves like a king. We read that he has a harem of women. He takes gold from the people. He expects their honor and, and respect. He even calls one of his sons Abimelech, which means my father is king. He even expects the family to succeed the throne. So suddenly this, this nothing, this weakest success has gone to his head and he thinks it's about me. I, although I've not taken the title, I've behaved totally like a king, so different to Jesus. Here we read in Mark 10, did not come to be served, but to serve. I will pick up this in two weeks' time. I'm going to spend more time on that. I just want to land by saying this. The message to me of Gideon is strong. God says, I will be with you. That's the message of Gideon. Is he a weak man? Is he in a battle? God says, I will be with you. He feels like he's in a cave. He feels like he's in a small place. God says, I will be with you. Now, what are you going through this week? God says, I'll be with you. God says, I will be with you. In fact, victory comes by the army standing. The enemy ran. Why? Because God was with them. It's incredible, really, if you stop and you think about this. And so I've got three groups of people that I'd love to pray for as we land this. The first is, if you're brutally honest, you think, you know what? I'm probably like the people I've forgotten to read the word of God. I look at this week, I look at my finance, I look at this year and I think, what can I do? Rather than what's God saying. I look at London and I think, wow, that is so big and it's so shiny. How will I ever make a difference with the gospel in London? We've forgotten the word of God. God says that actually we're his ambassadors. He's making his appeal through us. The second group that I'd like to challenge this morning are those that are still so wrapped up in their own giftedness that they think they're disqualified. If you're brutally honest, you're a little bit like Gideon and you think, golly, I know what I can't do, what I can't do, what I can't do, and you get smaller and smaller. You're hiding in a wine press trying to beat up wheat I mean, that just wouldn't happen if out of our time you'd, you'd realize, one, it was a very small harvest, and two, you need a wind to blow it and sort it out. He had neither. And if you're right here this morning, you just disqualify yourself. The third people that I'd like to challenge this morning out of this word is this. Success has taken you off track. And if you're really honest, life is doing great this morning. And you're not sat here thinking, oh, I don't know if I can do it. You think, I know I can do it. Man alive, the way things have gone for me in the last two years, I'm flying. My shares are up 15% on where they were. What, you still leave your money in the building society? I'm the man. And I think the challenge is sometimes our success takes us away from recognizing that he's the king. No, no, I'm doing all right in my marriage. You don't need to worry about me, Pete. Have we forgot to recognize that he's the king? We don't need a king because he is the king. We don't need to be like the other nations around us because he is the king. And we've let our success go to our head. I'd like to pray for you if you're one of those three. You've forgotten the word. You think you're weak. 
or success has taken you off track. Why don't we just take a moment, let the Holy Spirit speak to you right now. The danger is we can rush in the word and rush out. It's one of those three for you. What's God said and how are you to respond? If you'd like to respond in prayer, why don't you just hold your hands out? I'm not asking you to stand. I'm not asking you to kneel. But you think, yeah, you know, I've forgotten the word. Yeah, I disqualify myself. Well, yeah, actually, success, I've done so well, I'm not involving God like I used to. Just hold your hands out right now to him. Father, we feel challenged by this whole series, autonomy, we do right in our own eyes. That means we've turned away from your word and we think we know what's best. God, we feel challenged by this whole series, autonomy, and we think about ourselves and what we've experienced rather than what you speak over us. Father, we feel challenged about autonomy because we've got so successful that we think we can just do it all ourselves. We're not praying about things like we used to because we are the man, we are the woman. God, at the end of this morning, we want to come before you and say, actually, God, we recognize that we need you. We come with open hands saying, God, would you fill us? Would you challenge us in our thinking, in our living? God, let us humbly come before you. Let us not be autonomous from you. Let us not be separate from one another. Let us come with open hands, yielding ourselves completely to you. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.